I'd recommend. But in that particular book, he ends off that chapter in the closing chapter with this observation, namely that people are as happy or as miserable as the God they serve. People are as happy or as miserable as, they, as the God they serve. And Sunak's point was this, if the incomparably blessed God is our God, then surely we are incomparably blessed. Surely this makes sense. The scriptures tell us that blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Blessed, happy, joyful are those whose God is the Lord. See, people are as happy or as miserable as the God they serve. The question for us becomes this. What effect does this God have on us? When we hear of His Word, when we see His covenant promises being made, when we see all that He's done and all that He's doing, when we come to know who He is, what effect does it have on us? Is there joy? Is there wonder? Is there awe? Is there excitement for this God? I'm asking these questions because in our passage we see the effect that God has on David. David who has known God for many, many years, who has heard God's word, who has seen God at work, again is moved to joy. Again is marveling at God. We need to be careful not to misread this prayer. This is not some trite, rehearsed, cold prayer. No, it's joyful. It's exuberant. It's filled with awe and wonder. You see that in the rapid repetition of certain phrases. Ten times David uses the vocative, O Lord, O Lord. He even uses the personal pronoun for God over 40 times. David is here astounded by God. And he's astounded that this God would know him and care for him. Ten times he describes himself to God as your servant, your servant. David comes before God here in awe. In fact, you see this in his posture. He's in the tabernacle, presumably before the ark. And David is sitting, he's sitting on the floor and he's praying to Almighty God. Seeing David's been awestruck, he's been overwhelmed by God, he's enthralled by God Almighty, and he's struggling as a result to, to get his words out. Uh, one commentator, Mary Evans, is right, I think, in the prayer of David, there is a strong sense of wow. Wow, look at this God. Wow, look at this one who has given us such great promises, who has committed himself to this, who has called us his own. David here hears the promises of God and he responds with awe and wonder. And in this prayer, he's led to praise the Lord. He's led to yield himself to this God. And he's led to, to seek this God's glory. David's heart's been captured by awe. I, I think we can, we, we can and need to learn from David here. Uh, listen again to how Evans applies this prayer. The wow element of prayer is perhaps something that God's people need to recapture today. 
the awe that David expresses as he ponders on God's involvement in his life and reflects on the nature of this great God should surely be reflected in the hearts of all those who have been conscious of God's presence and action in their life. That's the challenge, isn't it? What effect does the one true and living God have on you? How will you respond to God's covenant promises? Will your heart be captured by awe? Will you rejoice and be enthralled by this God? Perhaps you've been sitting here and you've been a seasoned Christian for many years and these things are just the the routine. But we see David here, one who knows God is again enthralled by God. May that be true of us. Now to that end, uh, to the end of having us recapture that joy in our God, uh, let's consider the prayer of David. Um, and to understand some of these things to help us to that end, uh, I want you to see three things about this particular prayer. The first thing I want you to see is three questions. In verse 18 to 24, David asks three rhetorical questions, and these must be seen as exclamations of praise. Uh, Dale Rolf Davis says that with these questions, it's almost as if God has taken away David's breath. David is so overwhelmed uh, by God's goodness and God's grace that, that he's struggling here to put his word, his worship into words. Uh, uh, listen to Davis. He says, what can David say? Don't you hear the sense of, of helplessness in David's praise? The happy frustration he feels? Yahweh's, Yahweh's massive grace indeed, word and, and desire has doomed David's worship to inadequacy. What can he do but begin with who am I and end with there is no God besides you? The perfect combination of frustration and fidelity. God has impressed him. Uh, let's look at these questions that David asks for our benefit. Uh, firstly, who am I? You see that in verse 18 and 19. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now, David isn't having an identity crisis. No, he's expressing his wonder that this God would choose him. He's saying, who am I to receive this promise? Who am I to be favored in such a way? Who am I to be called by God? David, in this question, is simply saying, in a sense, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I haven't done anything to deserve this. I haven't earned this. In fact, David seems to understand this, that none of this is of him. He even says this in his questions. You have brought me thus far. See, David recognizes that he is a recipient of grace. It's God's grace that has done all of this. It's God's grace that has shown him this kindness and honored him this way. And dear friends, should we not echo David's question? Are we not all recipients of grace? Think of your life. Anything that you have and everything that you have is a gift of God. That's what James tells us, right? Everything is a gracious gift from your Father above. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? See, everything you have, all that you have, is a gift from God. You are a recipient of grace. 
Not just that, consider your salvation if you're here and you're saved. You've been saved by nothing in you, no, no good deeds, no good merit, no action on your part. No, you have been saved by grace, Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 6, 2, 6 says. And so we need to recognize that no matter we, where we turn, we are recipients of grace. And so that first question is, is quite important to us. Who am I? Who, who are you? Who, who are we? If we're honest with ourselves, we would have to say we are nobodies. We are recipients of grace. All that we have is of grace. And nothing in you, nothing in me, all of God. But that leads us on to the next question. Uh, the second question, this is what can I say, which we see in verse 20. And David says, and what more can David say to you? See, see, David here is so overwhelmed by God's grace that he's, he's almost stunned to silence. Why silence? Uh, let's look to how he follows up that question. For you know your servant. O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. See, David is almost stunned to silence because God is gracious despite knowing David. Now think about that for a second. God knows David fully and truly. God knows his heart. God knows his mind. God knows his desires. God knows his past. God knows his future. God knows him perfectly. And God still shows him grace. Still shows him kindness. Again, this is not because of anything in David. No, it's according to God's own heart. Now, perhaps you're sitting here and you've neglected God's grace in your life. Perhaps this is just something that you've heard before many a time, but can I ask you to, to again think about this, to, to again marvel at God's grace? Think about the fact that God knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. You know what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows the week that you've had. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows you fully and truly, and yet he still shows you grace. When you sin, he doesn't immediately snuff you out. No, he gives you another day, another moment, another breath. He lavishes upon you his grace out of the abundance of his heart, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. But, but what, what, what is the goal of this? What are one of the goals of why he is still so gracious to you and to me? Well, it is that we would know him. Look at the end of verse 21. You have brought about all this greatness, i.e. all your promises, all your benefits to David. You have brought about all of this to make, know, to make your servant know it. I.e., you have given me this covenant promise, David seems to say, to know your purposes, to know your will, to know your heart, to know your desires, ultimately to know you. See, God's grace is given to know the God of grace. And the knowledge of God should lead to doxology. It should lead to praise. It should lead to true, meaningful, knowledgeful, awesome wonder at our God. That's what you see in verse 22. 
Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. The flow of the thought seems to be this. Experiencing the grace of God should lead to the knowledge of God, which should in turn result in the praise of God. I, I, I wonder, I'm just thinking out loud, I wonder, is our lack of joy in God perhaps not a result of us failing to know our God, and we fail to know our God because we've presumed upon His grace. We fail to see how gracious He actually is. And so the question is, what are you doing with God's grace? What are you doing with all the gifts and the goodness that God has lavished upon you? Is it leading you to to grow in your knowledge of Him, to to grow in your relationship with Him? Is it leading you ultimately to grow in your worship of Him? To, To get back to our text, the second question is also vitally important for us. What can I say? What can we say in light of all that God has done? Well, what we have to say is this. There is nobody like you, O Lord. If the answer to the first question is, I'm a nobody, the answer to the second is, there's nobody like you. It should lead us to wonder and praise at this God, who is our God. That's the answer in verse 22. There is none like you. But leads us to the second or the third question, and that is, who is like your people? You look at verse 23 and 24. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. See, David David not only marvels at God's grace to him, but he marvels at God's grace to his people. And so he he recounts how God has saved them. In fact, you can summarize what David says of God's people here in three points. God's people are purchased. They're they're preserved. They're privileged. They're, They're purchased because they've been redeemed by God. He's purchased them out of Egypt. They belong to him. That they're preserved because God is the one who establishes them. Not only does He redeem them, He keeps them, He takes hold of them, He guards them, He protects them. And, and they're privileged because they are therefore in covenant with God. He is their God and they are His people. See, David here is essentially highlighting for us that God's people are precious in His sight. And all of this is meant to prop up the third question, who is like your people? And the answer is no one. There's no other people like God's covenant people. He belongs to them. They belong to him. They do not belong to this world. They do not even belong to themselves. No, they are his. They are, as Exodus says, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. Now you might ask yourself, is this just referring to to national Israel, political Israel? And the good news is, no, it's not. 
Remember, this promise is given to David. David is promised that one of his sons will reign over God's people in an eternal kingdom, and that son has accomplished a greater salvation than in Exodus. He has performed great and awesome things at the tree of Calvary and at the empty tomb. He has purchased a people with his precious blood. He has made them God's own, reconciling them, adopting them. See, at the cross and at the empty tomb, God has accomplished, the son of David has accomplished a far greater salvation for us so that if you belong to this greater son, if you've believed upon him, you are a citizen in his kingdom and you are one of God's covenant people. See, any person, whether Jew or Gentile, who does not confess Jesus as Lord and Savior cannot be in God's kingdom and does not belong to God's covenant people. That's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, when he applies the same language for Israel to the church, and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. See, if you're in him, if you belong to Christ, if you're a citizen in his kingdom, you are purchased. You are preserved. You are privileged. You are purchased by His precious blood. You are preserved by His mighty hand that keeps you. And you're privileged because this King intercedes for you. You belong to God and God belongs to you. And let that truth comfort your heart. Let that truth build you up and strengthen you as you persevere through trial and difficulty. You are a purchased, preserved, privileged people. You are precious in the sight of God because you've been purchased by the Son of God. And what's behind this? Is it you and your greatness? Is it me and my, my wisdom or strength or knowledge? No, nothing of that. It is all of grace. See, for David, the praise of God is fueled by the grace of God. As David humbles himself, as he raises these questions, he cannot but help praise God. He cannot but help extol his name. And I think these questions are helpful for us. If we meditate upon them, if we seek to answer them, we cannot but help also praise our God. Ask yourself this morning, who are you? Who am I? I'm a nobody, but I'm a recipient of grace. Who can, what must you say? Well, you must say that there's no other God. There is no other God who has taken someone like you, a nobody, and made you his people. Who are like God's people? No, there's no one like them because there's no one whom God has himself has purchased them with his own blood, made them his own. See, these questions should lead us to praise the Lord our God. It should lead us to stand in awe of Him. Why? Because He has showered us with His grace. By grace, He has revealed Himself to us that we would know Him. And He, by grace, has set us apart for Himself. See, in these questions, we see how God, David 
David's heart is captivated by God. The question for us is, have you been taken captive by God's grace? Have you been impressed by God that this God would want you and own you? Those are the three questions, and those three questions lead us to praise. Secondly, I want you to see two petitions Two petitions. Although much can be said uh, in verse 25 to 29, there's really only two petitions there. The first petition is in verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. See, the prayer is simply this. Lord, keep your word. Do what you have said. And the second petition is quite similar. Uh, You see that It starts in verse 28, the foundation is verse 28, and then it comes in verse 29, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, based on this word, now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. Now, at face value, it might seem like the second petition is, is different. David asked the Lord to bless his house, but remember, part of the promise is the blessing of David's house. And so when David prays this petition, he's essentially saying the same thing. Lord, keep your promise. Lord, do what you have said. Now, what's David doing as he's doing this? What's he doing? He's, He's yielding himself to God. He's doing what someone else taught us many, many years later. He's, he's doing this. He's saying, your will be done, not my will. See, David here is, is yielding himself and his life to God, which is a vital part of our worship of God. Us yielding to ourselves to him, walking according to his ways, according to his will. And what is one of the ways we do that? What is one of the ways we, we, we walk according to his ways? Well, we pray the promises. We, we plead the promises of God that reveal God's heart to us, his commitment to his people. We pray to him in light of those things. Notice David is able to pray courageously and boldly because he's pleading those promises. He's not praying his own whims, his own wants. He's not selfishly seeking his own blessing. No, he's bending his will to God's. He's praying the promises, and it just happens to be that those promises are for his blessing. See, David is, is, as it were, going to God in prayer with precious promises in hand. He's taking hold of God. Uh, Ian Bounds would say it this way, prayer goes by faith into the great orchard of God is exceedingly great and precious promises and with hand and heart picks the ripest and richest fruit. But but it's more than that. It's not just taking hold of some promises, taking hold of some ideas and and some nice puffy statements that you stick to your kitchen fridge. No, no, what these promises are and what makes them wonderful and beautiful and breathtaking is the fact that it allows you to take hold of God himself. Uh, Again, to quote Ian Bounds, we must take hold of the promiser or else the promises are useless. Now, why? Because the promise, the power of the promise lies not in the words itself, but in the one who makes the promise. 
See, this is what the Puritans wrote so much about. The promises allow us to, to cling to our God, to take hold of Him as our hope, as our help. In fact, I would argue this is another aspect of the Emmanuel principle we saw last week. The God who delights to be with His people delights in it when they take hold of Him in faith. He delights in it when they trust Him and rely upon His sure word. Uh, the classic example is Jacob, right? You remember in Genesis 32, in verse 9 to 12, Jacob is fearful because his brother Esau is on the way, and he's fearful because he knows that previously his, brothers, he brother, his brother wanted to put him to death. And so Jacob goes to God with God's promises, promises that he will keep him, and he pleads it to God. And interestingly, a few verses later, we see Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, clinging onto God for life. He's saying, Lord keep, Lord, keep your promise, bless your servant, and, and beloved, that's what we ought to be doing with reverence. We, we should be taking hold of God's promises. We should be taking hold of God Himself. When you say, Lord, keep your will, keep your promise, bless your servant. And dear friends, dear beloved, this should motivate awe in us. This should lead us to wonder that this great God, the, the mighty God of this universe, wants us to take hold of Him through His promises. He, he wants us to, to ransom Him, as it were, according to His word, to, to look to Him for help, to rely upon Him. Even in Isaiah 25, 27.5, it speaks there of him uh, uh, telling his people, let them take hold of my strength. Let them take hold of me. Let that lead them to peace. See, God delights in this. And, and so I asked the question earlier, have you taken hold of God's grace? And, and the question for us now is, have you taken hold of God? Have you clung by faith to His promises? Have you yielded yourself to Him in the process? It should astound us. It should marvel us that He gives us His promises, that He gives us Himself in His promises to be our God, to, to bless us and keep us. So, so that's the two petitions we see wherein David yields himself to God in worship. The last thing I want you to see is one mission. Three questions, two petitions, one mission. Uh, this prayer is structured quite simply. Uh, you have praise in verse 18 to 24 and then petition in verse 25 to 29. But I would suggest that there's another component that's weaved throughout this particular prayer. Not only does David pray the pray prayers of praise and petition, but David prays with a purpose in mind, with a mission in mind. And, and what is it? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God, not just in his worship, but the glory of God among the nations. Uh, the Puritans noted that when we speak of God being glorified, there's at least three things we need to note. Firstly, we glorify God when we admire Him. Uh, that's what we see in David's three questions. That's the purpose of his praise, God being admired for His grace. 
But, but secondly, we glorify God when we walk in His ways. That's what we see in David's set two questions. That's the aim of praying, to, to yield ourselves to Him, to walk in His ways according to His will. But thirdly, we glorify God when we speak highly of Him. Speak highly of Him, not to Him, that's still adoration, no, but speak highly of Him to others. I would suggest to you that this is the component of the spirit, the mission of the glory of God among the nations. That's David's desire here. You see this mission, you see this purpose of David in a few places in the spirit. Firstly, you see it in verse 19 when David prays, This is instruction or Torah for mankind, O Lord God. See, for David, the promises given to him, the promises that he will have a son who will reign in an eternal kingdom, that promise isn't just for him and his people. It's for the nations. It's to be told to all mankind that they would know that there is one king who reign is secure. You see this also in verse 23. David recounts uh, God's salvation of Israel, and then he adds that this God was making himself a name. What does that mean? Well, it means God is exalting himself among the nations, even in the process of saving a people. He's doing that so that the other nations would know that there is a God who judges the wicked and a God who saves the undeserving. In my quiet time, I've been going through Exodus again and the, the various plagues. And it's interesting to note that one of the purposes of the plagues was to make God known. Remember, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh is like, who's the Lord? And see, all of, that, all of those plagues, the redemption of Israel is for the, for, for the glory of God to make known who this God is. And so that's what we see here. God is making himself known through the redemption of his people. But thirdly, you see this mission of David in verse 26. Look at what he says. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. Now that's quite strange because Israel already know that God is their God. So who's being told here this particular saying? Well, it's the outsiders. It's, it's the nations who are being told, they're being told this, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. He is their God. Uh, David Firth, the commentator, says, makes this comment on that verse. He says, David's requested confirmation is directed outwards. So Yahweh's greatness should be demonstrated and acknowledged by others. See, I would argue that David is concerned for the glory of God, not merely in Israel, not merely in his praise, but among the nations. Now, now if you think that's a bit too far-fetched, uh, be reminded of one of David's motives when he faced Goliath, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, he says to Goliath. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Or if you're still not convinced, consider some of David's Psalms. Psalm 22 verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 86, verse 8 and 9. There is none like you among the nations, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship you, he says, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Or Psalm 138, verse 4 and 5. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they, shall, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the Lord God. See, see, David is a man concerned for the glory of God. It pervades his prayers, his petitions. It is the purpose of his life. God is to be glorified. And dear friends, that's the purpose of your life. The purpose that should animate your prayers and your petitions, the purpose behind your life, your worship, is the glory of God. Not only glorifying Him in admiring Him for the grace that you have enjoyed, not only walking in His ways in holiness and in obedience, but in speaking highly of Him, telling others of the fact that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good telling others that there is a God who is enthroned in the heavens, a God who saves a people who are undeserving, a God who can take nobodies and make them God's covenant people. John Stott, I, I think, understood this well. He, he says this worship, and realize we're talking about worship here. As we praise and pray prayers of petitions, we're worshiping the Lord. Worship involves witness. Worship which does not beget witness, he says, is hypocrisy. Why? He says, we cannot acclaim the worth of God if we have no desire to proclaim the worth of God. Dear beloved, is there a witnessing component to your worship of God? Is speaking highly of God to others included in your ideas of glorifying God? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to guilt you into being a better evangelist or joining some mission trip somewhere. I'm not trying to do that at all. My purpose is simply to point us to the joy of our purpose. Because that's what you see here. David sees his purpose with joy. Remember, he describes himself ten times to God as your servant. He doesn't say that begrudgingly. He says that joyfully. I get to be yours I get to serve you. I get to represent you. I get to glorify you. I get to be the, the hands and the feet of the almighty God in this world. See, see David sees himself joyfully as a servant. And, and the question is, do you see yourself joyfully as a servant to glorify this God? You should, dear Christian, because of the grace that has been given to you. You should because you belong to the almighty God who has seen fit to, to call you to himself and to lavish you with his grace so that you would be a shining light, a treasured possession for his glory in the nations. Let me remind you of 1 Peter 2, 9 again. 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, if people are as happy or miserable as the God they serve, then should we not be exceedingly happy, joyful, excited, because we get to serve the one and true living God who has purchased us for himself, the one and true living God who has called us to be his instruments in this world. He has showered us with his grace. He has given us himself in his promises and he's given us a great calling. That should motivate us to it with awe. That should stir your heart with thanksgiving that this God thinks so highly of people like you and me. Now, if you need another reason to be awestruck by this God, let me give you another one. In verse 1, we see that David comes and he sits before the Lord, and we think he's sitting before the Holy of Holies, and he's offering this prayer before the ark. He's in there. Now, you shouldn't be doing that, right? You, you know that, right? Only a priest was allowed to go there once a year. And if they approached unworthily, God would put that person to death. Yet here David is sitting in the Holy of Holies, we think, and he's before the ark on the floor, sitting. Now, you don't see that described anywhere else in the Bible, until you come to Jesus, where the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is in the true tent, the, the heavenly tabernacle, where he's in the presence of God and he is seated. Why? Because he has conquered our enemies, he's defeated sin, Satan, and death. He's purchased us for himself, he's interceding for us, he's keeping us. He's safeguarding us, he's reigning victoriously over all creation. And by faith in him, we get to be citizens in his kingdom. We get to be his ambassadors. We get to be even welcomed into his presence. We get given that hope of glory that one day he will come and take us to himself. And we will finally fully enter into God's presence and enjoy God's peace. That's what Christ has accomplished for us. He's accomplished it for us. That's why he's sitting there, even today, reigning. And so may that lead us to great awe and wonder at our God who has given himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're about to sing that song that says, I was made to praise you. I was made to glorify your name. I was made to love you. I was made to worship at your feet. Dear Lord, as we've just considered this prayer of David at your feet, as it were, we pray that we would follow suit and by your grace be again enthralled by you. That we again would have our hearts burning within us because we get to be your people because you have been faithful to your promises. You have sent a son of David. You have sent Jesus Christ, who has through his death and resurrection made us your own. And so we pray, dear Lord, that this gospel truth 
fill our hearts again and lead our mouths to praise you, not just in these four walls, but out in the mission field, that we would tell others of what we have seen, of what we have heard, that there is a God in Israel. There is one who reigns securely. There is one who saves sinners. There is one who guards and protects and defends his people. And so we pray, help us in this for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen.